0: It's Thursday, one more day, and then we are going to finish our study. Yesterday, we stopped short of finishing what we wanted to do, so we need to get up a little bit from what we were supposed to do yesterday. Before we go into today's topic, and today's topic is Christian religion, right, or Christian piety. So, before we go there, let's pray together and then we will dive right into our Bible study. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this beautiful day. Thank you that the clouds have disappeared, the sun shines, and thank you, Father, that we can be here at camp meeting, that we can focus extraordinarily much and In fellowship on your word and on what is presented here we thank you father that you are good to us that you are gracious that you are loving us that you have created us that you sustain us that you want to save us that you intercede for us and finally you want to come to take us home father in a world that presses right and left, up and down, we ask that you help us to maintain a Christian character, to exuberate a Christian influence. And may our right doing exceed greatly that of the scribes and Pharisees, as we are trying to follow your word. Today, I ask for your Holy Spirit to guide us as we are opening Scripture. I ask, Father, that you illumine our minds and you give us the strength to follow what we have understood. For we ask and we thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So... Yesterday we did the antithesis, and if I remember correctly, we stopped somewhere at the third antithesis, right? We talked about the law, how Jesus, what Jesus' attitude towards the law is, what he expects our attitude towards the law to be, how he exhorts the disciples to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. We talked about murder, uh, murder, Um, we talked about... um, Committing adultery and divorce. Those three antithesis. And we said, Jesus tells us that murder begins with words, with insults, and with epithets. Immorality. Committing adultery begins with lustful looks before, before we have lustful deeds or shameful deeds. And then we talked about Divorce. And for Jesus, at least in the Sermon on the Mount, we know from Paul later on that he adds the the desertment of the non-believing spouse and the death of the partner, other reasons for remarriage. So, um, today we will go into the fourth antithesis, and there it says, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times. You shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than that comes from the evil one. So, the fourth antithesis talks about swearing, right? So, honest speech. It was told, you shall not swear falsely. Both, in the Old and the New Testament, the Bible exhorts us when we make a promise, that promise needs to be kept. What the Pharisees taught them, because we saw yesterday that what Jesus is demolishing in the Sermon on the Mount is not the Old Testament, but he demolishes the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees, what he he demolishes here is the fact that the scribes and Pharisees used different sophistries, different swearing formulas. And you say, okay, can you show us that? Let's go to Matthew chapter 23. We have... Eight Beatitudes, we have eight woes in Matthew 23. So in Matthew 23, and there start with verse 16 with me, and we're going to go all the way to 22, and see what kind of swearing formulas the scribes and Pharisees used. And this is what Jesus is demolishing here in the fourth antithesis. Woe to you blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the sanctuary is bound by nothing. So if you swear by the temple, it's not binding. But whoever swears by the gold on the sanctuary is bound by the oath. So if you make an oath and you swear by the sanctuary, don't keep it because the sanctuary is useless. But if you swear by the gold of the sanctuary, that now we are talking. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the sanctuary that has made the gold sacred? And you say, whoever swears by the altar is bound by nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on the altar is bound by the oath. How blind you are. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the sanctuary swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God, and by the one who is seated upon it. So do you realize what the scribes and Pharisees did? They said, yeah, I just swear by the sanctuary. That's not binding. But when you swear by the gold of the sanctuary, Jesus excuse me, what, what keeps the gold? What makes the gold special? Is it not because it is on the sanctuary? Oh, if you swear by the altar... That's nothing. But if you swear by the gift that is on the altar, and he says, excuse me, is not the altar made sacred because of this gift that is special that is brought on the altar. So the swearing formulas are what Jesus is demolishing. And he basically says, if divorce is due to human stubbornness, Swearing is due to human untruthfulness. Do not swear at all. Jesus says in verse 34, let your yes be yes and your no be no. But you might ask, but excuse me, sir, if you go with me to the book of Genesis, and there in chapter 2, theologians call this the akida, the Sacrifice of Abraham, when he sacrifices, or is supposed to sacrifice, his son Isaac. Genesis chapter 22, and if you read with me there, in chapter 22, verses 16 and 17. Genesis chapter 22, starting with verse 16. I probably should start with 15, since the sentence begins in 15. And uh, and the angel of the Lord called Abram a second time from heaven and said By myself I have sworn says the Lord because you have done this and have not withheld your son your only son I will indeed bless you and I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as the sand uh, and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of their gates of their enemies Why does God swear? If Jesus tells us we should not swear, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son. Why do human beings swear? Yeah, when we are angry. But when do we make an oath? When do we say, "Oh, you look, I'm going to give you this money, and if I'm not going to give you this money, my mother shall die"? And they come up up with all kind of of things. Exactly, they want to strengthen their credibility. Does God need to strengthen His credibility? God does not swear to increase His credibility, but to, conform, to, to confirm our faith. Now, the question is, is swearing an absolute prohibition? Because that's how the Anabaptists in the 16th century took it. And they would, not swear, they would not swear at all. And the Quakers, they would not swear an affidavit, right? Even to this day. So is this prohibition absolute? Because if you go into Matthew chapter 26, the Passion Narrative, Look how Jesus dealt with it. Matthew chapter 26, and there, let's read uh, verse 63 and 64. Uh, Matthew chapter 23, uh, uh, yeah, 26, sorry, 26, verses 63 and 64. But Jesus was silent. He is in front of um, Pontius Pilate. But Jesus was silent. Then the high priest, or actually the Sanhedrin, then the high priest said to him, I put you under oath before the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said it. Yes, I am, Jesus basically says. But I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power and coming in clouds of heaven. Did Jesus swear? Yes, when the... When the high priest said, I put you under oath before the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah. He says, yes, I am. So is the prohibition absolute? We, no, we are not prohibited to go into court. And if the judge say, please raise, raise your hand and swear, it's all right to swear. He says, I'll tell the truth, and only the truth, and nothing but the truth. So may help me God. When Jesus was put under oath, he said, yes, you said it. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of of God. So then what should we Christians do? We should say what we mean, and we should mean what we say. I've encountered people who say, I said so, but I meant and what they mean is mostly the opposite of what they say. We, Jesus says we should use yes, yes and no, no. We should use monosyllables. Make it short, don't waste your breath. Say yes, yes, no, no. And if you say yes, follow through with it. Mean what you say and say what you mean. But do not Come up with a sophistry, because if you swear by the temple, it's worth nothing. But if you swear by... Don't swear at all. Say, yes, I'm coming tomorrow, or no, I'm not coming. And if you are saying, no, I'm not coming, don't show up. And if you say, yes, I'm coming, make sure that you're coming. Use monosyllables. The next antithesis, verses 38 and on, the fifth one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer, but if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. So you have heard what have they heard? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Where does that come from? From the, from the Old Testament, from Exodus, right? The law of justice. You knocked somebody a tooth out, the judge would decide, your tooth needs to go too. You hurt somebody and he got blind on an eye, your eye, your, the same eye would be plucked out from you as well. This is what we call the lex talonis, the law of retribution. But this law of retribution was established in the court system because the court system was supposed to be just and it was supposed to equalize the damage. If you did this damage, the same damage would be done to you. And the court system not only established justice, but it restrained the person from personal revenge. Because what happens if you do something to me? In vengeance, what do I do? You hit me once and I hit twice, right? Wasn't there a politician who said, if you hit me hard, I'll hit much harder. Well, that's exactly what revenge is. But what did the scribes and Pharisees teach the people? You have heard eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. What they taught them was, get that Lex Thalonis out of the court system, And do vengeance to them. They come to you, give it back to them. And Jesus says, No, 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 no. If somebody hurts you in order to overcome vengeance, because what does the Bible say? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. If You want to overcome personal revenge, you know what you do? And then he has these four examples, right? So, if somebody strikes you on the cheek, you offer the other one. Once again, this is not ethics for whom? For the governor or for the government. The government cannot operate by the Sermon on the Mount. Who operates by the Sermon on the Mount? The disciples. We as Christians operate by that, right? Right? If Russia strikes with an atomic bomb, Biden is not going to say, please, throw a second one on San Francisco if you throw the first one on New York. You understand? It doesn't work. This is ethics for the disciples. The government doesn't operate by this. Why? Because Paul tells us in Romans 13 pretty clearly. What does he say? The government is instituted by God and they carry what? The sword. Today they carry a little bit more than a sword, right? But you understand the point. So the government operates on different ethics. But Jesus says, look, somebody strikes you on the cheek, you offer the other one. Somebody wants your coat, give him all the other shirt. Somebody wants you to walk and carry his weapons a mile, and you're saying, sir, I'm kind of carrying it two miles, not just one mile. And somebody wants money from me, bags from you, give him, give him some money. Now, if... We apply what Jesus says, says, and we do not take what belongs in the court system. The lex talionis, the retribution, but we go by this: we overcome personal revenge, and that's exactly what Paul says in Romans twelve. Do not oh, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Jesus is not forbidding the administration of justice, but he takes. He doesn't want it to be taken out of the courtroom and practiced by individuals as a revenge. Because hate multiplied, multiplies hate. And that's why Jesus says, offer the other cheek. Go the second mile. Give your shirt beside your coat. And do not withdraw from the one who wants to borrow from you. This is... To forbid revenge, not to encourage injustice, dishonesty, or vice. The last, Antithesis, verses 43, and we already touched a little bit on it. You have heard, Jesus says, that it was said, you shall love your neighbors and hate your enemies. What did we say yesterday? Where does this hate your enemies comes from? from rabbinic tradition. It is not found in Leviticus 19, verse 18. So they added it to it. That's why we said what Jesus demolishes in the Sermon on the Mount is not the law. It's not the Old Testament. But what does he demolish? What does he destroy? The rabbinic teachings. What the rabbis taught the people, because that was wrong. It says, you have heard and it was said, Love your neighbor, that's exactly, and and yourself, but they added, and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, we already said something about those who persecute you in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake. Um... Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore as your Father in heaven, is perfect. So, Jesus says, love your enemies. Love your neighbors, love yourself, but don't hate your enemies, because that's what the rabbis taught you. But that is their addition. That is not what we intended to say. So, of course, who were the enemies? Everybody who was not a Jew. Um, What did Jesus do while, uh, while he was on the cross? For whom did he pray? For his enemies. Forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Now, if... Love for enemies didn't hinder Jesus while on the cross, and he prayed for his enemies that God may forgive them. What hinders us? We are not yet on the cross. Because Jesus asked, be Perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. What does this statement basically revolve around? What does it mean to be perfect? Because when we read this statement, what do we immediately think of? Moral perfection, right? Sinless. Are you sinless? Let me see how many raise their hands. How many are sinless in this audience? All right. I think that answered it right there. So, but Jesus says you should be perfect. Why are you not perfect? Well, I, I, it's easy to ask because I asked the question. I should ask myself why I'm not perfect. But what, what, what is Jesus saying there? Because all, everything turns around. What does he mean by perfect? Because as you must be perfect, you shall be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Is God perfect? Does he sin? No. So then, what does perfection mean? Because obviously we are not, and Jesus says we should be. God is. So what is going on? Yeah, we seek his character, but we have not come there yet. Sorry? The robe of righteousness, he, here in, 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 in Matthew, he talks more about the right doing than the righteousness attributed, what Paul later talks as the gift of righteousness, what we call justification. Because perfection means basically be mature, be an adult, fully developed. Now, what is the context that Jesus talks about when he says, you have heard? Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus says, no, no, I tell you, don't hate your enemy. Love your enemy because that's what the rabbis mistold you. They fooled you when they told you that you should hate your enemies. And then, of course, he gives these four examples. And then at the end, he concludes everything and says, Okay, now, guys, after I have had, I taught you all this, antithesis be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. What precedes that statement, if you look in the Bible? What precedes that statement? What does he say? How is God? What does God do to, to the people? How? Yes, he's impartial, but how? He let the rain fall on the good and the evil. Who are the good? Who are the evil? In the the understanding of the Jews during the time of Jesus. Jews and everybody else. Love your neighbor, the Jewish neighbor, and hate your? Greeks, Gentiles, uncircumcised, all the other ones. So, but what does God do? He loves them all. He loves the Jews as well as the Gentiles. Why? Because the sun shines in Egypt just as much as in Palestine. And the rain falls there just as scarcely as it falls in? But God does that. So, if you take that into consideration, what is Jesus saying when he says, Thou shalt be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect? You need to treat everybody like God treats everybody. If God gives the blessing of the sunshine and the rain on Israel and Egypt, then you need to be just as good, you need to love the Jewish people, your neighbors, just as much as you love, or you should, or you hate right now, you hate the Gentiles, but you should love them. Now you're saying, can you prove that? Go with me to the synoptic comparison in Luke chapter 6. If you go uh, to Luke chapter 6, And there, verse 36. Um into 35, But love your enemies, the same context, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your world will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for he is kind to the um, ungrateful and the wicked. And now verse 36. Be what? How does that explain the perfection? How does our perfection, how is our perfection supposed to look like? We are just as merciful as our Father in heaven is merciful. Nephi is merciful with the Jews by sending them rain. He is just as merciful with the Gentiles and sending them rain as well, right? And the Son to them as the Son to others. Very often, when we read this passage or this verse, Matthew 5, 48, Be thou perfect as your Father, and heaven is perfect, what do we immediately assume? Moral perfection, sinlessness, right? That's a passage, a verse that is very often used. Now please, don't misunderstand me. I'm not here to advocate, you know, do whatever you want. Finally, universal salvation is going to save all of us. Because that's a myth. But this verse does not talk about moral perfection. It does not talk about sinlessness. Because Luke makes it very clear. Be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. Be perfect. The context in the last antithesis, the love of the enemies, shows how God is perfect. How he is mature. How he is an adult. He lets the... Rain fall over the just and the unjust. He lets the sun shine over the just and the unjust. He lets the sun shine over the the, the Jew as well as the Gentile. Over the neighbor as well as over the enemy. And if we are supposed to be like our Father in heaven, then we need to be just as gracious with the Seventh-day Adventists as with our non-Adventist neighbor. Now, of course, you immediately will say, yeah, yeah, but, but 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 does not Paul in Galatians 6 say, do good but first to those of the household of God? Yes. That's why we come together. That's why we try to help our brothers and sisters in the church. But we should be just as merciful in order to be perfect like our Father in heaven with the Seventh-day Adventists as well as with the others. All right. With that, we have done what we lacked to do yesterday. Let's go now to... The religion or the piety of a disciple. And in this passage, Jesus uses three examples: his almsgivings, is prayer, and it is fasting. And that's what we want to look for today. So let's go now to the first one. Be aware, chapter 6, verse 1, of practicing your piety. Remember the Greek reads, your righteousness. Be, be aware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. For then you have your reward from your Father in heaven. Now, remember, here he says, be aware how you practice your righteousness. What does he say in the metaphor of light? You shall be the light of the world so that your, that the people see what? Your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Here, here Jesus says, be aware. Don't practice this. Practice it before Human beings before others. What does Jesus mean? Oy. When shall we be secret and when shall we be open? When shall we be private and when shall we be public? When you are a coward, you need to be open. And when you are in vanity, you need to be secret. Because if you are just doing what you are doing, almsgiving, praying, fasting, in order to show off, because you want to show your piety, your religion to others, Jesus says, your left hand shall not know what your right hand does. You enter your closet and you pray there. You wash your hair and you nicely dress up. You don't have to put sackcloth, uh, sack on you and ashes on your face so to show everybody that you are fasting. Nobody needs to look into your stomach. So Jesus talks here about motivation. When your motivation is to side glance and say, "Sister X, did you see that I gave that amount? Brother B, did you see how eloquently I prayed?" That's when Jesus says, "Be aware. How you practice your right doing. Practice it in secret. Okay, let's go to the almsgiving. Verse 2. So whenever you give, and all of this, giving, prayer, and fasting, all go according to the same pattern. Jesus makes an observation. Then he gives a prohibition. Then he gives a reward. Then he says, he brings another observation. And then he talks about the reward that God will have in heaven for you. So, look at it. First of all, he makes the observation. So, whenever you give, and the same stuff happens when, with prayer in verse 5, and whenever you pray. So, the observation always is made at the beginning. So, whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet. The prohibition comes right on the foot of the observation. Whenever you give, prohibition is do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. What is the motivation? What comes very, the very next clause? So that they may be praised. This is what Jesus condemns. The motivation is to show off. When you are tempted to show off, what does Jesus say? Jesus promises and says, be quiet. Just be quiet. Take it easy now. Go in the closet. Let nobody know what you donated. So the prohibition is, the, the, the motivation is right there. So that they may be praised by others. Truly I tell you, they have received the reward. So observation, prohibition, motivation, and the reward. You have, you have done it. You want it to be praised by the people. Guess what? Your reward is given. And if your reward is given, what are you lacking? The heavenly reward, because you got already your reward. So, and then he goes on, makes the next observation, the alternative observation. But when you give alms, do not let, let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be done in secret, and your father now comes the heavenly reward that your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, giving was important, right? So, the Old Testament always talks about helping the poor. What Jesus is saying here is make sure that you do not have in one hand the trumpet and the other one the, the penny so that everybody sees what you are doing. Giving is not to be before man so that they applaud you, nor before ourselves that we boast about. But giving is supposed to be Before God. That's why I condemn strongly what we have done. And we have imported that from the world. Because the world knows. Okay. Because they don't have a reward in heaven, right? But we have a reward from the Father in heaven. So what does the world do? They say, oh, come to us. Give us a million dollars. We build a million dollars. You can't build a building these days. You need at least ten. So come to us. Bring us ten million dollars. And we will do what? We will praise you, we'll have a nice feast for you, we'll celebrate, you will bring the best choir together, the best best musician, we will have a Laudato left and right, and then we will name the building, because that's what the world does. Now, I understand, I understand if the university down the road, Lake Michigan College, whatever, if they do that, that's fine. What is the problem with us? Right words of Jesus, that's the problem. Because if we do that, what have we done? We have forfeited that person for the reward in heaven. Because Jesus is very clear. Whenever you give, do not sound the trumpet. Do not publicize it. It's amazing that some donors are smart enough to say, please keep the donation anonymous. Hallelujah, they have understood something. And that is what we should do. I have nothing against looking on the other side of the grass and seeing, and maybe sometimes we think that on the other side of the, of the fence, the cherry in my neighbor's yard are sweeter than ours. All right, that's how we usually think. The Cherries are always sweeter on the other side. The grass is always greener on the other side. But we do not need to use the same fertilizer. Because their fertilizer is not our fertilizer. We have given some fertilizer. And this is the fertilizer that we should use. Okay, oh, hey. so Jesus says very clearly if you give alms, observation. Do not blow the trumpet, prohibition. Motivation is you blow the trumpet. Why? Because you want onlookers, side glance. Hey, hey, did you see? Did you notice? And very often we buy favors, right? By doing this kind of a stuff. We buy favors. And the reward, Jesus says, already done, over with. The alternative observation is when you give, do it in secret. Why? Because you expect a heavenly reward. And that fertilizer is better than the one that you are using here. That's why I do not believe in how we sometimes operate in this regard when it comes to almsgiving. The second Example that Jesus gives in the life, in the religion of a Christian, in the piety of a Christian, be careful how you practice your piety, your righteous doing, is prayer. And once again, Jesus starts the same way with the general observation. And whenever you pray, what comes right on the heel of prayer? The prohibition. Whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. What is the motivation of the hypocrites? For they love to stand and pray. Okay, there was some prayer in Judaism where a person was supposed to rise and stand while praying. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. So that the motivation, they may be seen by others. So the motivation was sight glancing. Did you hear how nicely I prayed? The motivation Now the reward, truly I tell you, they have received the reward. Alternative observation, but whenever you pray, go into your room, shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret, final reward, heavenly reward, what will the father in heaven do? He will reward you. I remember, we go to to Piney Memorial Church, right, to PMC, in, in, in Berrien Springs. That's a church that we attend. And in um, um, at Christmas time, there's usually, there's usually only one service. You guys who used to be at PMC, you know that, because they're the Christmas breakfast in the morning, first service, then there was only one service. And the PMC, usually we have two services, we have the early service and the, the later service, Um, So we spread a little bit the membership. But over Christmas, then you have a lot of guests who are coming or or, or family members who are visiting. And then second service, because there's no first service, second service is full. And PMC doesn't have the nice windows like here. They have a little bit of windows. And then the deacons are so smart to shut them down. Now you have a bunch of 1,500, I don't know how many people fit in PMC. You have a bunch of people at PMC and no windows. And the air gets pretty thick. So, several years ago, 10, 15 years ago, and of course, when it comes to prayer, it's Christmas, many people, and then our prayers go a little bit elaborate, right? And there's a a, a brother who prays, so we are kind of sandwiched in our benches, we go on our knees, and we go to pray, and our girls were small at that time, and they were on their knees, and, of course, all of us shut our eyes, and the brothers goes on preaching in his prayer. And he thanks the Lord for the Democrats and the Republicans in the church. All right. We probably need to inform God which which party alliance we have. And then he goes on and he goes on. And I'm thinking, wow, my knee hurts. So I'm getting up on one knee and just... One and the brother continues and goes on and I'm, I'm switching knees because by now it's, it's 10 minutes into prayer. And the brother still goes on. And suddenly, bang! And I opened my eyes and one of our daughters collapsed and psh, fell right under the bench. So, of course, we got her up, put her on the bench and, and, and tried to, 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 get her, to get her back. So... But prayer was so elaborate and we needed to inform the Lord of all the Republicans and Democrats who were in the congregation because poor God does not know which party line we associate with. Motivation is a factor. What do you pray with? I forgot to bring my book um, the Scott McKnight book, he has a sarcastic description of prayer, and he describes the different people, those who want to inform God, those who want to be listened to other people, those who have... Oh, oh he's, he's very, very elaborate on that. But very often, that's what we use prayer for. which prayer is not supposed to be this way. We are not supposed to be like the hypocrites. Because we side glance and we want to be praised by other people. Now, even the hypocrites do something good. What do they do? They get the prayer out of the synagogue... Because you, you probably have experience, you go. Now here it is nice, at camp meeting. Because we go to the hotel there, probably at lunch. It's most Adventist to begin with. So it's not a big deal to pray for lunch or breakfast, right? But if you are going and you are the only Adventist in the restaurant, and then there's loud music, and there is this, that, and the other, and then you're kind of saying, oh dear Lord, thank you for the food. <laughs> you know how it works, yeah? Or am I the only one? Thank you. At least some who can associate with a sinner like me. But the good thing is that the hypocrites take what? The prayer out of the synagogue. And where do they place it? In the street corners. Now, every Jew was supposed to pray how many times a day? Three times, right? Daniel prays in the open window towards Jerusalem from Babylon. He looks Westward, And he prays towards Jerusalem three times. In the morning, lunch, and at evening. At evening sacrifice. The morning sacrifice, the evening sacrifice, and between. Three times. So did Jesus most likely. So, it is good that the hypocrite takes the prayer out of the synagogue and brings it in the marketplace. But he times very well the time when the shofar blows for lunch, and it's time to pray. And where is he? At the very time when the shofar, when the trumpet blows for prayer. Where is he? At the, right, exactly. At the corner, because coincidentally he just happened to be in the corner. Why? And then he stops right there in the corner and he prays. Now why does he pray in the corner? I need to come down to, that you understand. So, so this is the street. And here are houses, and this is a street. Jerusalem is kind of highly populated, right? So, but he just happened when the chauffeur blew, he was in the corner. Why does he stand in the corner? The oh, so those people see him, and those people see him. It's not an audience because in between our houses. What do they say? Oh, wow, what a pious, righteous brother he is! See, he only prays in the synagogue. He doesn't pray in the, in the hotel or dear uh, Lord, And starts. He stops. And he nicely prays. But he just coincidentally it happened that he was on the street corner when he prayed. And so the people left and right saw him. And Jesus says, side glancing destroys prayer. What increases the efficiency of prayer? The presence of God. Therefore go where? In your closet and pray. Now. You see, the conference president is here, so you go home and you say, you know what, this brother from Andrews told us we should not pray any longer in public. What do we do now? Because we are playing now only in the closet. (laughs) So, Sabbath morning, we can't pray before the sermon. So what do we do now? So, does Jesus... Mean that we should not pray in public. So no more devotions in the family. So you can't pray with your family. We can't pray in church any longer. Wednesday night, close Wednesday night, no more prayer meetings. Because we're not supposed to pray in public. Have you seen what the emphasis is? Did you hear it? Here in... But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door... And pray to your father in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. What is Jesus emphasizing? When you are tempted to side glance, look around and say, Did you guys see me? Go into the prayer closet. Pray in Private, because you are tempted to make prayer a show so that you impress other people. Even if a few kids might fall into a coma in 15 minutes of long prayer, right? Because you need to impress somebody. Prayer is not designed to impress. Jesus prayed in the synagogue. Jesus read the scriptures in the synagogue when he went. Jesus is not talking, we should not pray publicly. But whenever you are tempted to make prayer a show, Jesus says, No, you need to go in the prayer closet because you prompt me to tell you that your prayer is vanity. Verse 7, when you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. So, what does the hypocrite do? He prays in public to be seen. What does the Gentile do? He bubbles a ton of words. Now, this Greek word is a word that you, Tinder, for example, translated. How do your translations translate it? Bubbling, right? They call it a, a word that by the sound of it, you can kind of hear what it says. Blah, 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 blah. So what does the Gentile do compared to the hypocrite? He heaps a ton of empty phrases on. And what does the Gentile think? The more words I add, the more Jesus is going to hear me. The hypocrite says, the more people see me, the more Jesus God is going to be favorable to me. The, the, the Gentile says, the more words I heap, the more efficient. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Your prayer, you hypocrite, should be secret and your prayer, you Gentile, should not be mechanical, should be thoughtful and not bubbling and heaping up a ton of empty phrases. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Yes, our father knows. So immediately somebody says, "Oh, see, because God knows, why shall I pray at all? Since he knows, let's keep it. So I can run half an hour long. I don't need to do any longer my devotions and pray, right? No, no, Luther said, we need a prayer. Not because we need to inform God that there are Republicans and Democrats, and maybe some independents in the audience, but because it helps us. We unburden in prayer when we ask God to help us. It strengthens our faith. We need Prayer more than God. God knows what we need. But we need it more than God needs it. And that's why we should pray. We should pray in public as well. But we don't need to inform God of all the things that we think he does not know about it. Because he knows before we begin what we actually need. And then he gives us this prayer, this model prayer. Pray in this way, Jesus says. And by the way, if Jesus would have forbidden Public prayer, what does he do right now? He publicly prays. Are you with me? Because the very next words, starting with verse 9, is a public prayer. So is Jesus condemning public prayer? No. Because he right now prays publicly. What does he say? Guys, pray this way. Our Father in heaven. The Aramaic says, our daddy in heaven. I used to have a colleague, Dr. Leah Caesar. He used to work for the Adventist Review. I think this year He retired probably have read some things from him. Every Wednesday morning when we had a prayer meeting in the department, he would always say, my daddy in heaven. That's how we would start every prayer, my daddy in heaven. Why does Jesus tell the disciples, instructs the disciples, teaches the disciples to pray daddy in heaven? Because we have a daddy in heaven. That's how simple it is. We have a relationship with a daddy who is in heaven. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. How do you hallow, how do you make God's name holy? What does it mean to make make something holy? The gold is holy that is on the temple. The, The sacrifice, the offering, the gift makes the altar holy. Or the altar makes the gift holy. What does it mean to make something holy? Hallowed be your name. How do we hallow God's name? What is, what is another word for make something holy? Sorry? Send a, make it special. So how do we make God's name special? By treating both him as well as his name with reverence. I don't know how you experience that, but I have a ton of kids who come into my class and have some theology majors, and then when they get frustrated with Greek, my gosh, my gosh, I say, take it easy, brother. Just take it easy. Leave your gosh out here, because Jesus says, make my name hollow. Do not misuse God's name. You might have learned that from whatever school you came, but we don't practice this kind of stuff here. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is Jesus' first priority? Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. First priority is God. We make his name, we make him special. We want his kingdom to come. We want it to come here on earth, but we also want it to see it consummated. We finally want to go home, right? And your will be done. How? On earth as it is in heaven. So we pray that we, as we are doing our righteousness that exceeds greatly that of the scribes and Pharisees, we approximate what we do on earth with what divine, what heavenly beings do in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We try to approximate our doing here with what happens up there. And then the second priority. Yeah, the first one, hollow his name, your will be done, your kingdom comes. And then he says, give us our daily bread, forgive us, and do not lead us into temptation. Then the second priority, the focus is on us. Give us our daily bread. Now, of course, many scholars, Jerome and church fathers, and oh, Jerome, the, the translator of the, of the Latin, Bible, they have said, oh, Jesus cannot talk about giving our daily bread. He probably talks about the Lord's Supper. It must be the, the word of God, the church father said. No, 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 no. God, Jesus asked the Father to give us what we need to sustain our lives here on earth. You might call it bread. You might call it cornflakes, whatever you call it. This is what we need to sustain our lives. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts. How? Verse 14, for if you forgive others their, others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. So we are forgiving. We cannot pray, forgive us our debts, but we say, I, I, I can forgive you because you looked so ugly to me 10 years ago. I can't forget that. It still hurts me every time I see you. Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our, what will the merciful receive? Mercy. What will those who will not forgive, what will they not receive? Forgiveness. That's how simple it is. And do not lead us into temptation. Do not bring us To the time of trial, the New Revised uh, um, Translation translates, but rescue us from the evil one. Now, James says God is not going to tempt us. But here Jesus prays that we should not be tempted. How do we fix that? See, the second sentence says, but rescue us from the evil one. What did God do with Israel in the wilderness at Marah when they came to the Red Sea? What did God do with Israel? He didn't tempt them, but he tested them. Here Jesus says, but rescue us from the evil one. So he says, when we are tested, let us not be overcome by the evil one. So he asks for deliverance because temptations can be, or testings can be sometimes so hard that we might succumb to the evil one. And Jesus prays, so that we might be rescued from the evil one. For if you forgive the others, and we read at that. And so Jesus talks about almsgiving. When you give alms, don't do it in public. Do it privately, because you don't don't need anybody to congratulate you, to applaud you. Because if that happens, your reward is done. When you pray, you don't need to be like the hypocrites who need to publish themselves, to be heard by other people, to be praised by other people. But at the same time, do not pray mechanically, thoughtlessly like the Gentiles, by heaping, by bubbling one word on the other. Now, you will have some people who say, Dear Father, thank you, Dear Father, Jesus, and because they use Jesus and the Father and whatnot, their phrases as a filler. And if we are supposed to use prayer thoughtfully, not mechanically, we probably should pray with fewer words, more thoughtful. And maybe pause in between until we gather our thoughts, rather than use God or Jesus or like as verbal fillers. Because some people have so much verbal clutter. When they, have, you, have you heard children, kids this day, students, they come, and every third word is like. And it was like, and it was like, and like. And I'm saying, just take it easy. Can you take that like out? Kind of disturbing, that verbal clutter. Put a sentence together without five likes. I get it. But get rid of your verbal clutter. And sometimes we use verbal clutter in our prayer. Why? Because we thoughtlessly pray. And we think like the where well, the more we bubble and the more likes we have, the more we are going to be heard. And she says, no, 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 no. Pray thoughtfully. Recognize that there is a father and you have a relationship with a heavenly daddy. And make sure that you sanctify his name. You make his name, you make him special. You ask for his kingdom to come and his will to be done. Right there up in heaven, we approximate our doing here on earth. We try to mimic what happens up there and then ask for the material blessings. If you need bread, that's what you ask for. If you need forgiveness, that's what you ask for. But we be sure that you're not asking only for forgiveness, but also offer forgiveness. And then ask the Lord, ask the Father. When he tests you, that you are not overcome by the evil one. And now he goes, Jesus goes into the third uh, example. Namely, he goes into the example of fasting. Let's read that. And it once again follows the same six pattern. For, uh, no, and whenever you fast, verse 16 in chapter 6. And whenever you fast, the general observation. Whenever you fast, did people fast in the Old Testament? Yes, Nehemiah fasted when Ezra came back and preached the law and taught the people from the law. The whole Israel, Nehemiah chapter 9, they started to fast. Jonah fasted when he went to, not only Jonah, the Ninevites fasted when he went back to Nineveh to pray. Daniel fasted. Paul, after the experience on the road to Damascus, they, they fasted. Now today, we Adventists, we are not putting too much emphasis on, on fasting, Right. We say, okay, Bible reading, prayer, devotion are important, but we are not talking too much about fasting. Jesus assumed that they would give alms. We are good in paying our tithe and our offerings and alms. That's good. We're good in prayer, but fasting has kind of come by the side because that's, the, that's what the Roman Catholics do, right? They have their fasting seasons and all this kind of stuff. And the Muslims have that and then they don't eat during the day but only eat during the night. I And so we We're not much into fasting. Maybe some fasting would not be bad. Jesus assumes that they give alms, that they pray and that they fast. So whenever you fast, the general observation, now comes the, the, the prohibition. Do not look dismal. Motivation comes right away. Like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces and show to others that they are fasting. So what is the motivation again? Show. That's what the motivation is. So general observation, when you're fasting, prohibition, don't do it like the hypocrites. They are hypocritical alms giver, They are hypocritical prayer warriors. And they are hypocritical fasters. For they disfigure their faces. Right, children. They need to show it to everybody. So you can't come nicely combed, can nicely nicely showered because you need to come with sack and ash on your faith and show everybody that you are really fasting. They disfigure their faces so as to show others that they are fasting. Truly I tell you, and now comes the reward. You have received, they have received their reward. Verse 17: But when you fast, now the alternative observation, but when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face, so that your fasting may be seen, not by others, but by the Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. And now comes, what kind of reward? The heavenly reward. To pray Is to seek God. To give alms is to serve others. And to fast is to discipline ourselves. The Pharisee, the hypocritical fasting is ostentatious, motivated by vanity and rewarded by man. The Christian fast is secret, is motivated by humility and it is rewarded by God. Piety, our religion, does not need to be displayed. Yes, Jesus says, let your light shine that the people may see your good works and praise the Father in heaven. But it is not designed, neither almsgiving, neither prayer, neither fasting, to promote ourselves. Self-promotion is destruction of, Of our heavenly reward. May the Lord help us not to short circuit our heavenly reward. Amen. Let me pray with you and um, I have to make an announcement. Let's pray first of all. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you, Father, that you have encouraged us not only to give alms, to pray, to fast but to be careful how we do that and may we do it in such a way that people see it but they glorify you that we do not try to promote ourselves to get the applause of people for it but to get the reward that our heavenly father is willing to bestow on us as we are going through this day I ask father that you guide and lead us you give us this sermon in what we hear in what we are studying, so that we can understand your word, your will for our lives. And we thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Maybe.